All right, good evening and welcome to the Buford Church of Christ this great Wednesday evening. We're glad of, for those of you who decided to come out and be with us that you made the trip. If you're logging in online, hopefully uh, you're, you're with us and we're, we're live right now and um, we thank you for logging on and we hope that it's going to be a beneficial study and period of uh, looking at God's Word for you. We want to uh, extend our sympathy to uh, Paul Pope and his family in the loss of his aunt, Jewel Henson of, Con of Cochrane, Georgia, uh, on October 16th due to complications with COVID-19. So please pray for the Pope family. We also want to remember uh, Peggy Janicek. Uh, she has been hospitalized in Brazelton after suffering a few TIA strokes. Uh, it says she is doing well and should be able to go home tomorrow. So please remember Peggy in your prayers. You can visit our website's health update page for any other post and the latest on all the things going on. I have a few announcements I want to remind you of. Uh, this Sunday, October 25th, after our Sunday night assembly, we're going to be having Trunk and Treat in the upper parking lot. Uh, if your family will be participating, please park in the upper parking lot that evening. Kids will be going from car to car to collect candy and treats. Measures will be in place so social distancing can be maintained. Uh, some of the things they're going to be doing is wearing gloves, using tongs, hand sanitizer, some other stuff uh, to try to uh, capitulate to all the things that we need to be doing. So there's going to be a drink station where bottled water, Capri Suns, and even hot apple cider will be given out. So good for that. Bring your kids. Uh, we, as Todd said Sunday, we can't really have trunk and treat without kids. So Bring your kids. We really look forward to this every year. I know the kids do, so please uh, come out and show out for that. And it's going to be a great night this Sunday, October 25th. Uh, please take a moment, if you're here with us or if you're listening online, to fill out an attendance card online on our Watch Live page. Scroll down and fill that out, and you can add any kind of comment or prayer request you'd want the elders or ministers to be aware of. This Sunday, we have many options for you on that. 9 a.m. we have Bible classes, uh, and we're going to be having those in person as well as online. And at 10 a.m. we're going to have worship in person as well as online. Masks are recommended as you come in and as you exit, and downstairs is a mask-only se uh, section. Also, at 6 p.m. on Sunday night, we have another period of Bible study planned for you. If you uh, want to come and be a part of that, we're going to be having our Ministers of the Roundtable session again on Sunday night at 6 p.m. We're going to be talking about what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. So we'd love for you to come and be a part of that and listen uh, to our lesson on that at 6 p.m. Ministers of the Roundtable. Those are all of our announcements for tonight. Uh, before we get into our lesson for tonight, let's go ahead and go to God in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we come before you and we thank you for the day that you've blessed us to live and to be here with one another and to open up your word and to study from it. We pray that it'll be a beneficial time for all of us, a time that uplifts us and encourages us and builds us up and challenges us as we look at what the writer of Hebrews through your Holy Spirit has to say to us tonight. We thank you for the book of Hebrews and the lessons that we have learned thus far. We pray that you'll continue to be with our study, help guide us, and teach us your will through this book. Thank you so much for your word that, as the writer said, is 
sharp and powerful and pierces into us, and we pray that we will allow it to do just that and change our hearts and our minds so that we can be molded to the image of your Son through whom we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so Hebrews the better letter. This is going to be week eight, I believe, of our study in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be having 12 of these studies, if you're trying to see the end of this. Uh, we're going to be having 12 of these studies. The 13th week of our quarter is going to be a singing night on Thanksgiving week. And so we, we're looking forward to that. But we have only a few more weeks left in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and last week, if you weren't able to be with us, which was uh, a lot of people, because uh, we, we had some technical difficulties, we're aware of that, we're sorry that that happened, and uh, hopefully we're going good tonight, and uh, it'll all be streamed out the right way tonight, and uh, you're there with us tonight as we're going through this study tonight. So last week, since a lot of us missed it, uh, by the way, that is on the IBM recorded, you can go to the recordings and catch up on that full study if you would like to do that. But last week we studied the 8th chapter of the book of Hebrews. If you remember, we studied <clears throat> how the writer of Hebrews is comparing this old Mosaic covenant to the new covenant found in Christ. Since many of us missed what we really talked about in that lesson, we want to kind of take a few moments to remind everyone that was here, and as well as catch up those people who kind of missed that, we want to remind them of what we talked about last week. We began last week by defining what exactly a biblical covenant is. We talked about what a covenant means. We looked at the Old Testament to learn exactly what it is, and we saw the different components that a covenant has to have, and how each time we see a covenant in the Bible that it is simply repeating these same fundamental elements of a covenant between God and man. And these elements were how a covenant is a promise made from a superior to an inferior. Remember, and it, the inferior, because of their willingness to adhere to the conditions and responsibilities, God promises to take care of them. And we also saw another component of a covenant is it is always sealed with blood from a sacrifice. And so then we went to the, uh, the book of Genesis chapter 8 and we looked at the Noahic covenant that God made with Noah with the rainbow and you know the classic VBS story, but we kind of looked at it a little bit deeper for a few moments as we looked at what a covenant means. And then we talked about what chapter 8 talks about. And that is the direct comparison between the Mosaic covenant to the Christian covenant in chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews. And that chapter fully exposes and explains exactly why the Christian covenant is better than the Mosaic. It is infinitely better than the covenant found in Moses. In fact, if you've got your Bible open to around there online or with us tonight, verse 22 of chapter 7 says that explicitly, that Jesus has given us a better Covenant. Chapter 8 and verse 6 says the same exact thing about having given us a better covenant. You see, the new covenant, as we saw, was prophesied about in this big lengthy prophecy that you find in chapter 8 from Jeremiah chapter 31. You can go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, hundreds of years before Christ. 
Jeremiah was already prophesying about this covenant that would be to come. This covenant that could not be ignored. And this covenant that chapter 8 and verse 13 says has made it obsolete. The new covenant in Christ Jesus has made the old covenant obsolete. And indeed it has vanished away and has grown old. And so we talked about what it means to be obsolete, no longer worthy of use. That is the Old Testament. That is the Old Covenant, at least. And we looked at these verses in Colossians 2 and verse 14, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, and we talked about exactly what exactly the writer is trying to say. Because he has made the old law, the old covenant, obsolete, we know, and we, we talked about last week, that it means that we get to be a part of the people of God. Without Him doing that, without our discussion from last week, we wouldn't be able to even be a part of God's people. And that leads us to our study tonight in Hebrews chapter 9, as we're going to be studying about the comparison of the old law when it comes to the sanctuary and the new law when it comes to Christ's sanctuary. And we're going to be talking about how Christ indeed gives a better sanctuary than the sanctuary found in the law of Moses. So what does the word sanctuary mean, really? You know, tonight, you might have been in the church for uh, many, many years. You don't really know what the word sanctuary means. You know, I believe the word sanctuary is one of those church words. One of those Bible words that we say all the time, we hear all the time, and we may not really understand what it means. What are some of those words? Propitiation, right? You hear the word propitiation, I can't even spell that. Or justification. We might know what they mean, but we don't really know, uh, or we might know the context that they're in, but we don't really know or use them in real life. We don't use these words in real life. When was the last time you heard someone say the word sanctuary? You know, I was trying to think of a, a cultural reference, somebody using the word sanctuary. Uh, the only one I could think of was, uh, remember the Titans, Denzel Washington calls the football field, that's is my sanctuary, right? But you don't really hear anybody talk about sanctuary in everyday life or propitiation in everyday life or all these words sometimes that we find in the Bible you don't find them in the context of a regular discussion that you have or a conversation. Unless you're raised in the church, sometimes you may not have any idea what they mean. And sometimes even if you are raised in the church, sometimes you feel a little bit uh, bad about asking questions. I mean, how bad do you feel if everyone around you you think understands and is on the same page on, as you, but you're not on the same page, so I'm not going to raise my hand and ask a question. I've been there sometimes. Sometimes I talk too much and ask too many questions. But when we think about the word sanctuary, do you know what it means? You know, the youth, and sometimes when we're lucky to sing it down here, we sing the song, Oh Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Do you know what you're asking the Lord to prepare you to be, or do you just think it's a good song? Sometimes we need to understand the words that we're singing because they're deep and they're meaningful and they provide a great 
meaning when we understand what's going on. So the same resource that we've been looking at throughout the whole study of the book of Hebrews, the better letter, has been the Old Testament. Many times we've said that it's the greatest commentary, it's the greatest supplemental reading to our study of Hebrews, and that's because simply the writer of Hebrews is comparing the new law that is found in the New Testament to the old law that is found in the old. So obviously our greatest resource at our disposal is the Old Testament. And so we need to consult it for a minute, just like we did last week when it comes to covenant. We need to consult it when it comes to the word sanctuary. What exactly is the writer of Hebrews talking about when he's talking about the word sanctuary? Well, when we look at the Old Testament, we know that we really can see two sanctuaries described throughout the Old Testament. One of them is found in the tabernacle. This is the movable place that the Israelites moved about throughout the wilderness, throughout the time of wandering. The tabernacle that Moses and the others built and set up through God's command throughout the wilderness. And up all the way until the time of the temple of Solomon. And then when we see the temple of Solomon, we see a new sanctuary established in the temple. So those are the two sanctuaries that we can find in the Old Testament, the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. But it's not really good for us to just know what they were, and we don't know what they did. What purpose did they fill for the people that were wandering? What purpose did it fill for those people who were coming for, to the temple? What role did it play in the nation of Israel? Well, the goal or the purpose of the sanctuary in the Old Testament was really just to simply put, it was to provide a place for God to reside. Provide a place for God to reside among the people. You see, the people being flawed human beings and, and, and being imperfect and having sin on their record, God could not be in the presence of that evil. So they had to set apart a specific place for God to reside among the people. And this was in the sanctuary of the tabernacle and in the temple that we find in the Old Testament. And as we know, as if you've been through any type of study of the sanctuary, we know that when it comes to the sanctuary, there were two places. We're going to talk about that in a minute. There were two sections of the sanctuary, the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Or as our writer tonight is going to call it, the holiest of all. But who could enter into the holy of holies? Only one person, right? Once a year on the Day of Atonement, could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies? And as we talked about earlier in our study of the book of Hebrews, we know that that high priest was going to have to offer sacrifices for himself and then offer sacrifices for the rest of the people. But as we see, this is the place that righteousness resided. The most holy place is where, obviously, Holiness is found. It is the dwelling place of God. It is the physical representation of godliness in the Old Testament. And the sanctuary of the Old Testament, like I've just said, is separated into two separate 
functions, two separate rooms that we can read about. And the first one is the holy place. A quick reminder of what the holy place was. There was a veil between the holy place and the courtyard. And once you passed that veil, you were in the holy place. Guess who was invited into the holy place? The priest and the Levites. No one else. Let's talk about what was inside of the holy place. Inside of the holy place was a seven-branched golden lampstand. A golden lampstand, and there was a table of showbread and an altar of burnt incense, or some of the Bible calls it the golden censer, right? And then, so that's the holy place. And then you got the most holy place. And guess what there was between the most holy place and the holy place? Another veil. And so you go behind that second veil, and guess what's inside? The Ark of the Covenant. This is the place where God resided. In fact, the, the, the Bible and some of our, the writings we see in the Old Testament make us believe that God literally resided in between the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Look at Psalm chapter 80 and verse 1, if you want to see that. Psalm 80 and verse 1, it says, You who dwell between the cherubim, or the seraphim. I can't remember what that exact text says. Psalm 80 and verse 1, if you want to look at it. God resided above the Ark of the Covenant in this place called the Mercy Seat that the high priest would come. He would sprinkle the whole place with blood. You can look at Leviticus about that. A little, little too much for me. A little too bloody for me. I don't like bloody movies. And if you made a movie about this one, it would have to have a lot of gore in it because of the blood involved. The sacrifice that was required. And that was in the Holy of Holies. Well, what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant, do you remember? Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was uh, this golden urn of manna. You can look at Exodus chapter 16 and verse 33 for that. You have Aaron's rod. You can look at Numbers chapter 17 and verse 10 for that. And then you had the tablets of the Ten Commandments. You can look at Exodus 25 and verse 16 for that. And so this is what the difference is between the most holy place and the holy place, and the courtyard, and you're starting to see all these separate single dividers. All right, such, such and such people are invited into this place, but they're not invited to this place, but no one's invited to this place. And it's getting less and less and less, and more divided, more divided, more divided. And that's exactly how God wanted it to be set up. Not just anyone could come into the Holy of Holies. Not just anyone could come and offer sacrifices or ask for the repentance of the people. Notice the veil, the, the one that separated the holy place from the courtyard and the one that separated the holy place from the most holy place. These are God-ordered, God-ordained barriers between Him and the people. God was the one who put these barriers up, these levels and these compartments within the Old Testament that we find. It's like you had to have a security card or code to get in in our context today. You might have clearance in here, but you don't have clearance in there. God established these barriers, these different levels and compartments in the sanctuary of the Old Testament. Remember that as we get started on the sanctuary of the New Testament. And that brings us to our study for tonight in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. 
If you don't have a Bible, there might be one on the pew in front of you. Try to pull that up. I don't have them on the screen for you tonight. I just have these references. So Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which, we were, in, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Alright, so this is exactly what we just talked about. This difference between the holy place and the most holy place. Again, just like he's done all throughout the book of Hebrews, he's explaining this calling back to the Old Testament, reminding them of all the things of the Old Testament, the old law. He did the same thing with the covenant. He did the same thing with the prophets. He's doing the same thing tonight when it comes to the sanctuary. And really, I believe, he's setting them up just like he has every single time throughout the book of Hebrews. He's setting them up, building them up, playing on their nostalgia. He's saying, do you remember all of these things? He's trying to remind them of his audience of the greatness of the height of their existence as the Israelite nation. This Old Testament sanctuary that was found in the tabernacle. Do you remember the temple? Do you remember the tabernacle? The golden covered Ark of the Covenant that was layered in gold on all sides. Do you remember that? How great that was. Do you remember Aaron's rod? Do you remember the golden bowl of manna? Not sure why he brought that one up. They didn't like manna, but there it is, nevertheless. Do you remember all these great things? The mercy seat, the cherubim, the, 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 the great height of our society as a people and our, existent, our existence, the, this historic sanctuary. You can almost hear them as, or think of them as they're reading. Yeah, I remember that. I remember hearing about that in Bible school. Growing up, that great sanctuary that Moses built, I can think about it. I, you know, I hadn't seen it because I can't go in there, but I can think about it. I've heard about it all my life. He's playing on their memory, on their nostalgia. You remember that veil? Remember, you remember the second veil? You remember, and he's building on this over and over again as we start this chapter. And in doing so, he's reminding them of the earthly sanctuary of the Old Testament. And he's about to show them just how inferior it is to the sanctuary of the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Notice, before we move on, in this text, in verse 1, he describes it as an earthly sanctuary. It's going to be key as we go forward in our text. But with that, we're ready for verses 6 through 10. Verses 6 through 10, it says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part of the high, the part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way 
into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and the fleshy ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. All right. Here again we're seeing him describe this Old Testament themes, these Old Covenant themes, the Old Sanctuary. He talks yet again about how the old sanctuary, only one person could go into the most holy place. And he would offer sacrifices. He would do this. He would do that. And we've already talked about all of that. But in the first section, 1 through 5, we're seeing what the sanctuary was. In verses 6 through 10, we're seeing what was done inside of the sanctuary. So we're talking about what the sanctuary is. We're talking about what was performed, what was done, what service, as it says, was done inside of the Old Testament sanctuary. And within this first ten verses, we're already seeing five reasons why the Old Testament sanctuary just was inferior. He hasn't even described, he hasn't even explained the New Testament, the, the sanctuary found in Christ yet. He hasn't even done that, but we're already seeing some flaws within this Old Testament sanctuary. In verse 1, we see that it's earthly. The Old Testament sanctuary was earthly. What would that mean? Guess what? Everything that's earthly needs. It needs maintenance. It needs people supervising it. It needs people fixing things that go wrong. It needs repair. It's earthly because it, it breaks. Moth and rust destroy, right? And so this earthly sanctuary would constantly need the priest and the Levites and the, and the high priest to continually take care of it. To continually make sure that everything was right. To make sure that all was well within the holy place and the most holy place. And so already we see that since it's earthly, it's less than the one we're about to talk about. That's the first point. The second point we see is that it's just a copy. It's just a copy. Look at verse chapter 8. We talked about this last week. In chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, it says, "...who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle." What was in the tabernacle? The holy place, the most holy place. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. And so we see that the sanctuary of the Old Testament, this tabernacle inside of the temple, guess what it was? It was simply a copy. A copy of the heavenly. A shadow of the thing that was to come. And so obviously it's less than. What else does this text say about the Old Testament sanctuary? Well, in verses 6 and 7, it says that it really wasn't accessible to all. It says it was only accessible to certain people. We've already talked about the different breakdowns and the different barriers and the different compartments and the different security clearance that you got to get. It wasn't accessible to all. It was really inaccessible to the average Hebrew person. 
The only person that could go inside was the priests and Levites, and then past that barrier was the high priest. So that's obviously going to be different in the one we're about to talk about. Next point, in verses 8 through 10, we see that it was temporary. How do we know it was temporary? Well, it says, until the Reformation was to come. Until the Reformation was to come. So obviously it was temporary. And we know that it was temporary because verse 13 of chapter 8 told us that the Old Covenant is obsolete. The same way it was obsolete, so also is the sanctuary of the Old Testament. And so when we think about this, it's earthly, it's a copy. A copy, what does that mean? I hate to go back a little bit, but a copy is a representation of the real thing. It's like a, uh, a facsimile of it. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's as close as humans could possibly get to the original, but it was not the original. It was not the real deal. So when we think about it being inaccessible, we have to also remember that this would, this, this would not include everyone. This would only allow those who are part of the priests and the Levites to go inside, and so the average Jewish male or woman, woman couldn't even get close to it. But the average Jewish male couldn't get into the holy place. They couldn't go past the courtyard. The sanctuary that we're about to talk about is open to all at all times. And we're about to see that. And then the last point that the Old Testament sanctuary makes it inferior is it says it could not fully purify. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. It could not even purify to the uttermost, to the, to the fullness that we need to be purified. So regardless of the conscience or the sin of the man offering the sacrifice, guess what it was? When it comes to the Old Testament, it was just a ceremony. It was a ceremonial offering of sacrifice more so than a spiritual one. Instead of getting a spiritual remission, it was a ceremonial remission. It didn't take care of the sin, it just rolled it forward and forward and forward. So the purity that was found in the Old Testament way was ceremonial, not spiritual. Ceremonial in that the high priest had to sprinkle the blood just in the right place, just in the right manner, just in the right way that God ordered, just with the right kind of sacrifice, and the list goes on and on and on and on, like we talked a little bit about last week. If I do all these things, if, if I'm working all these things out that God told me to, then it's going to be all right. It didn't matter the conscience of the high priest doing it. It didn't matter how good of a person that guy was, as long as he was doing the actions that God told him to, that was all right. Because at the end of the day, it could not purify that man's conscience. As verse 9 says, it could not perfect his conscience. So that's what the writer has to say about the Old Testament sanctuary. Now we're ready to talk about what he has to say about the New Testament sanctuary. And that's going to be found in verses 11 through 15. Let's go ahead and read those. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, 
with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls, excuse me, that's later, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Wow. That's a lot. But we've got to unpack what he's saying about Christ's sanctuary. First of all, he says that it is heavenly. It is heavenly. Look at verse 11. It says that it is not of this creation. Not of this world. It is not earthly. It also said it is not made with hands. It is good things that were to come, the text says. Skip down to verse 24. I know we haven't read it, but you can skip down. It says it was simply a copies of the true one. The old one was. This is the real one, the one that Christ has made in the new covenant. It's not the copy, it's the original. So we see that Christ's sanctuary is heavenly. And when we think about that, it means that Christians, under Christ, you don't need a copy anymore. You don't need a facsimile. You don't need the the best representation of. You get the real thing. You get the actual heavenly thing through Jesus Christ. The next thing we see after we see that it is heavenly is that it deals effectively with sin. For the first time in all of humanity, sin is dealt with effectively. Look at verses 12 through 15. In verses 12 through 15, we see that the blood of Jesus is superior to the blood of bulls and goats and calves. And since it is superior, it is able to effectively deal with sin. Not just roll it forward, but to eternally deal with it. In fact, it says, having obtained eternal redemption. In verse 12, Jesus' death was voluntary. How many of those animals of the Old Testament on into the first century... How many of them just walked up and, it's my my turn. No, they had to wrangle these animals and drag them over there and spill the blood and they didn't want to be killed. But they had to for the sins and the sacrifice of the people. That's not how Jesus' sacrifice was. In fact, when the soldiers came to get him and to drag him, what did he do? He went with them. In fact, he told Peter, put your sword up. Isaiah 53, lamb to the slaughter. Jesus went voluntary, voluntarily. Animals were always forced. What what else about Jesus' death? 
Well, Jesus' death was final. It was once. Guess how many animals they had to keep killing and killing and killing and killing all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. There's no telling how many animals were, were killed and had to have their blood spilled for the sacrifice and the sins of the people. But guess how many times Jesus' blood was spilled? Once. Once for all. Animals were perpetually having to die for the sins of the people. Jesus, His sacrifice, we're going to talk about that next week, but His blood was good enough for the once for all. His redemption is final, not rolling forward. His cleansing was spiritual, not ritual. We talked earlier about how the cleansing of the old sanctuary was simply a ritual, simply uh, something that they did. But the sacrifice and the cleansing that Jesus offers is spiritual. And we also see that Jesus' sacrifice was without spot and without blemish. Without spot and without blemish. I believe that's what uh, Acts tells us that the church should be. No, it's not Acts, it's Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.27, around there it says the church should be without spot and without blemish, just like our Christ is. So that's what we see, and because of all of this, because of all these different things we've just mentioned, because of this sacrifice and this blood and this Jesus, what does verse 15 say? And for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Because of this, Verse 15, Jesus has become the mediator of this new covenant, this new and better covenant carried out in the new and better sanctuary. You see how this is going down here. You have the covenant that was the promise between God and man, and then you have the sanctuary that carried out the covenant. That's what we're seeing in the Old Testament, same in the New Testament. Christ has made a covenant with us and He carries it out through His sanctuary. And since Christ's sanctuary is better, it is superior to, guess what the sacrifice of that sanctuary has to be? It has to be better. It has to be superior to the one that came before. And we read about that in verses 16 through 23. 22, excuse me. 16 through 22. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So the writer of Hebrews begins this section by comparing someone's legal last will and testament. 
Don't raise your hand. We're not going to uh, take a picture here, but how many of you have a will and testament for what's going to happen after you leave this earth? Who's going to get what? Who's going to get that classic uh, couch everybody loves? I don't know what y'all passing down. Probably not as important to the people you're passing it down to than it is to you, but even still. Many people have a last will and testament. It's a great practice. You should have one. If anything happens to me, give it to her. I, my wife there, I don't have one yet. I guess that's just my uh, young brain. I guess I should get one. But a last will and testament. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Guess what we know about a testament, a last will and testament? It can't be enacted until the person who enacted it died. It can't happen, it can't go into effect until the person who wrote it dies. And that's exactly what he's saying about Jesus. To receive the testament or the will of the benefits left to you, the death of the testator must take place. You can't get all the stuff until, you can't get all the inheritance until, you can't get all the things in the will until the testator dies. And that's exactly what he's talking about. The death of the one giving the inheritance has to occur. Well, guess who gives the inheritance? Jesus. Guess who the testator is? Jesus. And so he had to die. He had to die to enact this will, this last will and testament. This covenant that we've been talking about. He had to die so that we might receive the blessings of the testament. Of literally the New Testament. His death brought about the terms of the New Covenant. What was that last component of a covenant we talked about last week and a little bit this earlier? The last component is it has to be sealed with blood. The last component of a covenant all the way back to the Noah one, all the way to Abraham and all the way throughout the Bible is sealed with blood. The reason it's back this week in our discussion this week is the sanctuary is where the blood was spilled. In fact, he, he mentions back in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, you want a crazy story? Go back to Exodus 24, 3 through 8, as Moses sprays all the people with blood. All these artifacts that were going in the holy place, in the most holy place, he sprays it with blood to purify the people, purify those, those, those vessels. Why? Well, verse 22 says, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission. Keep that in mind as we read the rest of the chapter. Verse 23. Yeah, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavenlies should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear into the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And that's how the chapter ends. But what's it say? Since Christ's sanctuary was better than the copied sanctuary, like we said earlier, it required a better sacrifice. The better sanctuary, the executor of the better covenant, had to have a better sacrifice. Therefore, since this sanctuary is in heaven itself, it says, it required a sacrifice from heaven itself. You see all these components coming together all at once. Better, 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 heaven, heaven, heaven. It required a better sacrifice. And that's going to lead us into chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews next week. So here's the conclusion of what we've just talked about and why this would matter to the original audience. Remember earlier we looked in the first ten verses of why the earthly sanctuary of the Old Testament was less than, inferior to, because it is earthly. Because it was simply a copy. Because it was inaccessible to all. Because it was temporary. Because it could not purify. Well, what have we learned throughout the rest of the chapter about the new sanctuary? We've learned it's superior. Why? Because it's heavenly. Verse 11 and verse 24, it says, In heaven itself, verse 24. Verse 11, it talks about He is entered into heaven. Number two, it's effective with sin. For the first time, the sanctuary is effective with handling sin. It's no longer prolonged and rolling forward and forward. It's taken care of in this new sanctuary. Next, we see that it's costly. It costs a whole lot more than the blood of bulls and goats. Next, we see it's the fulfillment. There is finally a sense of fulfillment in this new sanctuary. There's no longer a copy of the true. We are with the true. And now we are appearing before the presence of God through Christ. Verse 24. And then lastly, it is final and complete. It is not temporary. It is not until the Reformation comes as the old one was, as we read about earlier. It is final. It is complete. Verses 25 through 28 tell us that. There is no sanctuary to come. There is no sacrifice to come. It is final. It is complete. And so obviously, this new sanctuary is superior to the sanctuary of old. That's what the book of Hebrews chapter 9 is saying. That's what it meant to the original audience. 
And just as we close, I want to ask you, where do you think this audience is as they're reading this, as someone might be reading it to them, as it maybe it's preached to them? And I think it might be like this right here. Their minds are blown. I was talking to Kyle uh, last week about the whole old law being obsolete, and he, he said that was really powerful about how the old law is obsolete and how those original audience must have felt after they heard that. You know, that's so true. The old law must have been obsolete to the point that it blew their minds. Think about what they have heard over the context of this book so far. First of all, we heard that the prophets are inferior to Jesus. Then we heard the angels are inferior to Jesus. What? Then we heard Moses. No, don't say Moses. Yeah, well, Moses is inferior to Jesus too. Joshua, inferior to Jesus. Aaron, the high priesthood. All the high priests you ever loved or ever read about, inferior to Jesus. The hope given in the Old Testament, inferior to Jesus. The sanctuary we talked about tonight, inferior to Jesus. The Mosaic Covenant we talked about last week, inferior to Jesus. Tonight i got a question. How convinced, how convicted do you think this audience was at this point? How convicted and how convinced do you think all those who were still following Judaism were? You know, Kyle mentioned this too. He said, I wonder how many people came to Christ because of this book. There's no telling. This chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is blatantly showing everyone that this is the way. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How convinced and how convicted they must have been reading this book. This book is nothing short of amazing. How the writer has already accomplished all these things in these first nine chapters. But that's to the original audience. What does it mean to us tonight? What does chapter 9 mean to me and you tonight? The same as last week, I want, to play, I want each of us to place ourselves in the foot, in the feet, in the shoes, one of those, of a first century Hebrew person. I want you to place your feet in, I want you to place yourself in their shoes. And I want you to think about, instead of being able to pray to God to yourself, for yourself, you had to go ask someone else to do it for you. Instead of being able to talk to God and ask for forgiveness yourself, you had to go to the temple. You had to go to the tabernacle. You had to get an animal sacrifice, maybe bring it yourself, and bring it to this guy who would then take it, wrangle it up, and go in the most holy place while you're sitting out there in the courtyard hoping he does it right. Open, he spills all the blood in just the right way. 
Have someone else take this animal, this sacrifice, and someone else go before the presence of God, and someone else spill the blood that should have been spilt by you on your behalf, and someone else offer this sacrifice and give to God on your behalf. Instead of being able to experience the refreshing that comes through repentance, Acts 3 and verse 19, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know how much refreshing they got to experience? Little to none. All you felt after you were left, after you left, after you got your sacrifice done, it was a see you again next year. You went through all that, you traveled all throughout the desert to get to Jerusalem, you got the sacrifice done, and you thought to yourself, good grief, i got to be here again next year i got to do this all over again next year. Instead of feeling redeemed, instead of feeling forgiven, you left feeling unfulfilled. You walked away with the knowledge of knowing that it really wasn't fully taken care of. It just rolled forward another year. Imagine this, maybe that didn't hit you. Imagine this, seeing the high priest day after day the way he lived the certain deceit that he showed and the lies that he told. The way he lived his life and the way he was flawed and how he twisted the law to fit his own political interests sometime, his own biases, his own personal will. Think about Aaron building a golden calf before the people and then a few years later having to offer sacrifice for him. Can you imagine that person being in charge of offering sacrifices on your life? On your spiritual soul? That was the life of someone who followed the old covenants, the, Hebrew, the Israelite nation. That person had to offer sacrifices on behalf of the sins of your family. This was the life of an everyday Jew. But guess what? Just the same as last week, this wouldn't even apply to us because we weren't Jews. At least their sins got to roll forward. At least they had an atonement, a propitiation, atoning sacrifice for sin. Blood of bulls and goats. At least they had goats. How, what did Gentiles have? Just like last week, we have to beg the question, where would this have left you and me? Nothing. But because of Jesus' better sanctuary, because He tore down the veil, because He is high priest forever, because He has established a better covenant, because He carries out that covenant in a better sanctuary, because of all of that, we have somewhere to take our sins. We don't have to depend on someone else. You don't have to depend on me or the elders or someone else to forgive you. You can go straight to the throne of God yourself. You can go into the Holy of Holies because that veil was torn in two. You can go in there.
There is no division between man and woman anymore. We're all able to go before God because of the better sanctuary. Because of this, God isn't sitting in between two little metal gold angels. He's sitting at the throne. He resides in us. Not a geographical location. We don't have to go to the mercy seat in Jerusalem. We go to the mercy seat in the throne room of God because of Christ's better sanctuary. Go back up to verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Because Jesus gives us a better sanctuary, we can actually have our souls cleansed and our conscience cleansed from dead works. And we're able to serve the living God ourselves. We can receive a spiritual purification not just the ceremonial purification of the Old Testament. Because Jesus truly gives a better sanctuary, we can enter the holy place, we can enter the holy of holies place through His blood. And that is only because of Jesus. And the perfect sacrifice that we're going to be talking about in chapter 10 next week. Thank you for your attention. We're going to ask Brother Wayne Johnson to come and lead us in a closing prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the many blessings you've given us. We thank you, Father, for Ben and the preparation he put into to giving this lesson tonight, and we pray that we'll take what we've learned and apply it to our lives, and it'll help us to be a shining light to others. We pray, Father, for those who are going through difficult times, uh, through health or other problems, that you will be with them and, and help them and help us to reach out to be there for them as well. Father, be with us as we go through the rest of this week. For this prayer in Christ's name, amen.